Uh, I'm going to talk to you this morning a little bit more. We've, I've been talking to you uh, last month about our, our position as sons and daughters, our position in the family of God and what that looks like. And I, and I still have the release to go on to something else. I still feel like the Lord is just, is just pounding that in to my spirit. And if it's in my spirit, guess what? You're going to hear about it. So um, I, I just feel the Lord talking more about this idea of being sons and daughters. Uh, but this morning, I want to talk specifically about what that looks like as far as our authority as sons and daughters, which is, it's cool because I guess last week, I listened to the message, last week Pastor Ron talked about authority as well. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool when the Lord does that. But I want to talk to you about our authority as sons and daughters. And I want to talk, I want to uh, look at it through a scripture or through a passage that maybe at first may seem kind of obscure when you're talking about authority. Uh, but as we go on, you're going to see, see why I, uh, why the Holy Spirit is speaking through the scripture. But um, I want to talk to you this morning about the prodigal son. So a very familiar passage about the prodigal son. Um, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but because most of you know it, but just a quick synopsis of what that is. It's a parable that Jesus spoke, uh, um, a parable that Jesus spoke in, in, in Luke. And what, what the parable was, was that there was a, a father and that had two sons. And the, the youngest son came to the father and asked for his inheritance, wanted his inheritance early. And so the father go ahead, goes ahead and gives his inheritance to the son, to actually both sons, uh, gives them their inheritance. And the younger son goes off, and the Bible says that he goes off and lives wildly. And so a lot of scholars believe then that he spent his money on prostitutes, spent his money on drinking and, and just wild partying is what the scripture tells us. And he, he ends up blowing all of his inheritance, all of his money, and finds himself as a servant serving another man in the pig pen. And uh, many of you know the story. It goes on to say that, that he was so hungry that he was willing to feed him or to eat what the pigs were eating, to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. And it says that one day he came to himself and he realized it would be better for me to go back to my father's house and be a servant in my father's house than to remain here in this pig pen. That it would be actually better for me to be a servant in my father's house than it would be to remain here. So he comes to himself and he goes home. Most of you know the story goes on and says that he was nervous about going to his father. He was, he was terrified that his father would reject him. So he begins rehearsing the line over and over again that, that, that when he gets to his father, that he's going to tell his father, Father, I've sinned in heaven and in your sight. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Let me become back as a servant and serve your house. And he's rehearsing that over and over again. And we know the story. He gets to his father's house. He steps on the land. And his dad does the unexpected, right? His dad sees him in the distance. He drops everything, runs to his son who abandoned him, who went off and lived wildly, who spent his entire inheritance, went to his father, or his father ran to his son, embraced him. And before the son could even get the words out of his mouth, the dad called for the robe and the ring and the sandals and threw a great feast and celebrated his son's return. Beautiful story, beautiful story of repentance. It's a beautiful story of calling the prodigals home. And many times when we talk about this story, that's exactly what, who we're speaking about. We're speaking about those who maybe who were once a part of the fellowship, who were once a part of 
um, believing that Jesus Christ is Lord and who had backslidden and who had gone away. And if the prodigal son returns, you know, calling those who have gone away to come back home. But, and, and that's normally what we talk about, and it's absolutely appropriate to preach that message that way. But how many of you know that this isn't just about those who have backslidden? This is about every single one of us. This message isn't just about those who have once had the faith and who no longer had the faith. It's about all of us, the ones who have been in the faith our entire lives. Because how many of you know that when God created you, he created you as a son and a daughter? But because of Adam's sin, we all fell away and had to find our way back to the house. Every one of us had to find our way back to the Father's house and make our way back to to the Lord. And so this story is not just about prodigals. This story is about all of us. This story is about all of us. And what's cool about this story is the three things that the father gives to the son when he returns. And that's what I want to talk about with you this morning, the three things the father gave to the son when he returned. So just to recap, he gave him sandals, put sandals on his feet, He gave him a robe, and he gave him a ring. He gave him sandals, a robe, and a ring. And those three are easy to read over, but we're going to take some time and and talk about what each of those things meant, both in that culture and then what it means for us spiritually, okay? So the first thing we're going to talk about is the sandals. It says that when the prodigal son came home, that the father called for sandals to be put on the son's feet. Why is that significant? Why does the Bible, why does Jesus mention that in his parable? And the reason is this. In that culture, there were two people who would walk around barefoot, and it wasn't hippies. How many of you were hippies back in the day? Anybody? No hippies? Oh, Oh, I'm kind of disappointed. All right. There were two people that walked around barefoot in that day. They were servants, and they were slaves. Those were those who walked around barefoot. And so, and, and every, every scholar, every uh, Greek word search that you do will tell you that the only two people that would be barefoot in the days of Jesus were servants and were slaves. Were servants and were slaves. So when the son comes home to the father, the first thing the father does is put sandals on his feet to announce that my son will not be a servant in the household that my son will not be a slave in my household, that he is a son of this household. And that he's, so the sandals represent him bringing him back into the family, bringing him back. And not just that, it's announcing that he is not a slave anymore, that he is not a servant anymore. Because when he was off in the wilderness by himself, he had spent all of his inheritance and had to be forced into slavery. And the father putting the sandals on his feet was the announcement that he was not a slave anymore, that he was back into sonship. Amen? Here's a spiritual connection to this that is pretty amazing, that we were all slaves to what? Every one of us was slaves to sin. It says in Romans 6, 17. Go ahead and go to Romans 6, 17. It says, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which was delivered to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That every one of us 
was born into slavery, into sin, that when sin called our name, we had to answer, that he was our taskmaster, master, that slave, that, that sin was our taskmaster, that we had to obey our lust. We had to obey every beckoning call of sin. But thanks be to God, he gave us the sandals to break this off from that slavery. That when Jesus died on the cross, it says that we were set free to sin, which means this, go to the next verse in Romans chapter eight. It says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. That we no longer are in debt to sin anymore. That we don't owe sin anything anymore. It says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Is there another verse on that one? Yeah, I keep going all the way to verse 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. That we're no longer slaves to sin, but we are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. So the father put the sandals on the son's feet to declare that you are no longer a slave in my house, but you are a son. And when Jesus died on the cross for us, it was an announcement to sin that we are no longer debtors to sin. That when sin calls our name, we can tell it no. That we are no longer slaves to sin, but the sandals have been put on our feet and we have been called sons and daughters of God. And now we have authority over sin. Before sin had authority over us, but now we have authority over sin. So when sin calls our name, we can tell it no. Amen? You no longer have to listen to, to that voice of sin calling your name because you have been made a son and not a slave because the sandals have been put on your feet. Amen? The next of the three is the robe. The father called for the robe to come and be placed on the son. This isn't an ordinary robe. This isn't some random robe. When the father called for the robe, the servants knew exactly what robe the father was talking about. That in those days, many of you have probably heard this before, but in those days, your clothing, your garments was a, um, was a sign of your status, where you belonged in society, that, you, that what you wore was a sign, it was a symbol of what, where you ranked on the hierarchy. So kings had their own robes. Priests had their own kind of robes. Fathers of houses had their own kinds of robes. Uh, slaves, you knew they were a slave by one if they were barefoot, but if their, their, their garb would show that they were slaves or they were servants. So this robe was not just some random robe in the cabinet. It was the father's robe. It was the father's robe that they were being called for. The robe in that day represented the lineage of the family. This robe would have been passed down from generation to generation because it was a sign it was a, uh, a piece that showed the hierarchy of the family, that who wore the robe had the authority in the house. So that's what this robe is. The robe, uh, when you put the robe on, it means you're not just carrying the authority of your position, 
but the authority of the generations behind you. Did you hear that? It's not just your own authority when you're wearing this robe, but it represents the authority that your father carried, that your grandfather carried, that your great-grandfather carried. It's, it's the lineage of your family. And wear the robe was, was a sign of great honor and authority. And so the father called for the robe, and the robe got placed on the servant, the son that was the prodigal. And when everybody saw the son wearing that robe, it was a sign of authority for the son. It was a sign of honor towards the son. And we see this in a couple different places. I'm going to reference these for, the, for a couple times. But Genesis 41, verse 42. <clears throat> Many of you know the story of Joseph uh, and how Joseph uh, was a son of Jacob and that Jacob or that Joseph got sent off into slavery. I'm not going to go through the whole story, but eventually he finds himself in Pharaoh's household. And Pharaoh, it says this, then Pharaoh took off his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and he clothed him in the garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. What was the purpose of that? Why did Pharaoh do that for Joseph? Because he was, uh, if you remember the story correctly, Joseph becomes second in command of the entire kingdom of Egypt. So when other people would see Joseph, how they knew his authority was because he was wearing the ring of the Pharaoh and he was wearing the robe of the Pharaoh. He, they knew that his authority because of the robe that, was, that he wore. Go to the next verse. So you see this in Joseph with the Pharaoh, but you also see it in the book of Esther. So uh, the story in Esther of, of Mordecai. So Mordecai was Esther's like uncle or cousin, something. Maybe I should go back and read Esther. But he, she was, he was uh, the one giving the Esther advice. And uh, so... Uh, the king ends up, through a series of events, calling uh, Mordecai his prime minister, making Mordecai the prime minister of the region. And so how did, how did he signify that? How did he show that? It says here, so the king took his signet ring off his hand and gave it to Haman. And the son of Ambedethia, we'll call her Ham, of Agieta, <laughs> the enemy of the Jews. Uh, do I have any more? Because that is totally the wrong verse. Somewhere in Esther chapter 3, the king gives <laughs> Mordecai the robe. Just believe me, it's there. You can go read it yourself. It's in Esther. Uh, <laughs> okay. So the king places the robe on Mordecai as a sign that Mordecai now has the authority of the king. So you, could, you get where I'm getting, going with all of this. That when the son, when the father place the robe on the prodigal, he was honoring him with their lineage, and he was giving him authority, the authority of the family. So what does that mean spiritually? What does that show us, uh, what does that mean spiritually for us? Um, go ahead and go to the next verse, Gen or Isaiah 61, chapter 10. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as the bride adorns herself with jewels. That we are clothed in righteousness. That the robe for us is righteousness. Go ahead and go to the next verse. 
This one gets even crazier. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So what does the robe mean for us? The robe for us, spiritually and symbolically, is Christ. That we put on righteousness. That the righteousness of Jesus is now cloaked on us. That we walk with the authority of Christ. That the lineage of the Father is now placed upon us. How many of you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about legacy. That's what this is. It's the legacy of our Father being put upon us. That when people see us clothed in righteousness and clothed with Christ, they see the Father. That we walk in the authority of Christ and of our Father because he has clothed us with the robe of righteousness. Amen? You are clothed that you actually put on Christ. That we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So the robe for us is the robe of righteousness, that we are clothed with the lineage of the Father. When people see us clothed in righteousness, they see our Father. Amen? Amen. Hey, I'm going to need a little more response. Amen? There we go. We get a little more soul in the church, you know? All right. The last one, the ring. We saw already in the other verses, I'm not going to show them to you again, but we saw in the verses that there were two things they were clothed with to show their authority. It was the robe and the ring. That Pharaoh gave Joseph a robe and he gave Joseph a ring. That Mordecai, or the king, I think it was Xerxes is his name, something like that. The king and Esther gave Mordecai a robe and the ring, and we saw that in that verse. We didn't see the robe, but it's there. Uh, the robe and the ring. And so these two things represent authority. What's significant about the ring is this, that when the, the ring is placed upon the finger, they become the, they, they then have the authority of the father, or the authority of the king. They can actually make transactions in the name of the king who owns the ring. That it's a symbol that the authority that is on the king is now on the person who wears the ring. So if you get sent, if, the, if they were to get sent to another region, that they actually have the authority because they wear the ring to, to give commands as though they were the king. So the ring represents the authority. So when the prodigal son came home and the father placed the ring on his finger, he was giving him authority of that family's kingdom. That he could actually make transactions, financial transactions, transactions with property, transactions with other people. He actually now had the authority to make those transactions in the name of his father, which is kind of crazy, right? You're the son who just went away and threw away all of the money, he gave the authority to now make transactions in the father's name. Talk about faith, right? Talk about restoration, right? Restoration right, right away. So the ring represents the authority that, that the person wearing the ring uh, represents the king or the father, the person who gave them the ring. What does that look like spiritually? What does that look like for us? Ephesians chapter one, verse 13 says, and because of him, when you are not, you, or when you who are not Jew heard the revelation of the truth, you believe in the wonderful news of salvation. Now here it is. Now we have been sealed, or we have been stamped with the seal of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Next verse. He is given to us 
like an engagement ring is given to the bride. As the first installment of what's coming, he is our hope, our hope promise of the future inheritance, which seals us until we have all, we all of redemption's promises and experience the complete freedom, all for the supreme glory and honor of God. So what does the ring represent to us spiritually? What does it represent to us symbolically? The ring represents the seal of the Holy Spirit. That when we became a Christian, this, this verse tells us that when we accepted Christ, that we were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit came into us, and because of that is now the evidence that we belong to the Father. And it is the evidence to the rest of the world that we have the authority to make transactions in the Father's name. That the ring that was given to us, the engagement ring, what, is it, what does an engagement ring do? When Amber married me, she now has authority to go into the bank account that belongs to me and make transactions, right? Which is actually a good thing because she's way better with money than I am. So I benefited from that. But the ring gives you the name of the person who, gives, who gave you the ring. So now she takes on my name, and it's the same thing. When we, uh, when we became Christians and the Holy Spirit came and sealed us, we now take on the name of the Father, and we now can make transactions in the name of Yahweh God. That we, it's another sign that we are part of the family. Amen? What does that look like? What does all this mean? What does all this look like? What does it look like to be sealed with the Holy Spirit and make transactions in his name? If you look at the life of Peter, if you look at the life of Peter, what happens with Peter? Peter denies Jesus three times, right? He's the one who denies Jesus three times. He's the one who, yes, he called out that Jesus was the Messiah, but then the very next few chapters, Jesus has to tell him to get behind me, Satan, for you're not speaking of the things of the kingdom. Peter's wishy-washy. He's back and forth. He's denying Jesus. But then what happens in Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. The house is filled uh, with wind, and, and the house begins to shake. The Holy Spirit comes. They all begin speaking in other tongues. They are filled. They are dude with power of the Holy Spirit. What happens to Peter, who was once denying Jesus? He stands up in front of the multitudes. The multitudes that just a few, a, a few weeks ago or a few months ago crucified Jesus. He stands up in front of all of them and begins declaring the gospel of Jesus in power. And it says that that day, 3,000 people were added to the church. The very ones who crucified Jesus, he stood before them and 3,000 of them came to believe that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. 3,000 people. Before the Holy Spirit, he was denying him. After the Holy Spirit, he saw 3,000 people come to know the Lord. What else happened? He goes, him and John go up at the hour of prayer to the gate called Beautiful. They're going to the synagogue to pray. They see a lame man on the road who's begging for alms, who reaches out to Peter and John and asks for money. And Peter says what? He says, money I don't have to give to you, but what I do have, I give to you. Rise up and walk. And the man stands up and walk. Stands up for the first time in his life and begins to walk. And it's, the Bible says he begins to leap and to dance for the very first time in his life. Another instance of Peter he gets a phone call that this faithful woman of God named Tabitha 
has passed away and died. He gets a phone call. He goes there. Yeah, I know a phone call. <laughs> he gets a message from a guy riding a camel. And so he, he goes to Tabitha. He walks in the room. He has everybody leave the room and begins to pray for this woman. And he tells her, Tabitha, rise up. He takes her hand and pulls her out of the grave, raises this woman from the dead. This is the same guy, the same guy who denied Jesus three times. And it's the difference of before the Holy Spirit and after the Holy Spirit. That before the Holy Spirit, he didn't have the authority to cast out demons, to raise the dead, to heal the sick. But after the Holy Spirit, he was sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. He got the ring. And because of that, he was then able to make the transactions because he had the authority of the Father. The other cool thing, I have a couple other cool things. It's all cool. And I have 9% left on my iPad. Um, the other cool thing is this, that with the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son, that the sandals, the ring, and the robe, especially the ring and the robe, would normally be inherited by the firstborn son. That normally it would be the firstborn son that received the robe, the lineage of the family, that received the authority to then go and to govern the family. It was normally the firstborn son who received the ring to be able to make transactions uh, um, representing the father. But in this case, the second son, the prodigal son, the one that had to return, comes back and receives the same inheritance that the firstborn son got. Why is that interesting? Because the Bible says that Jesus was the firstborn among many brethren. That Jesus was the firstborn. So what does that mean? That means that what the prodigal son is telling us is that the inheritance that Jesus gets the authority that Jesus walks in, we receive that same inheritance. We receive that same authority because the father doesn't just give it to the firstborn son, but he turns around and lays the ring and the robe on the secondborn son as well. So we're walking in the same inheritance. Go, go ahead and go. I don't know even where you're at, Chad, if we're on the same place or not, but Luke 15, is that the next verse? You got it. It says, for this beloved son, this is again the prodigal son story. It says, for this beloved son of mine was once dead, but now he is alive. Once he was lost, but now he is found. And everyone celebrated with overwhelming joy, or overflowing joy. This verse immediately clicked in my head. It reminded me of another verse in Ephesians chapter 2. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. It says, and his, his fullness fills you, even though you were once like corpses, or in another translation it says, even though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he made you alive. Just like the prodigal son who says, who my son was dead has now been made alive, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and now we have been made alive. Go ahead and go to the next verse. It wasn't that long ago that you lived in the religion, customs, and values of this world, obeying the dark ruler of this earthly realm who fills the atmosphere with his authority and works diligently in the hearts of those who are disobedient to the truth of God. The corruption that was in us from, the, from birth was expressed 
through the deeds and the desires of our self-life. We live by whatever natural cravings and thoughts our minds dictated, living as rebellious children subject to God's wrath like everyone else. Hello, prodigal son. Once again, we were all in this state at one point in time in our life, that we were living for ourselves, that we were living by the dictates of sin and the dictates of the darkness and the, the, the principalities and powers who rule the air, that we were all subject to them. But, verse 4, but God still loved us with such great love. He is so rich in compassion and mercy. Again, the prodigal son, the, father, or the, the son comes home to a father who loves us in spite of our sin, in spite of us following the darkness, in spite of us living in all that. He had such rich compassion and mercy for us. Verse four, five, I mean. Even when we were dead and doomed in our many sins, he united us into the very life of Christ and saved us by his wonderful grace. All of it with the prodigal, looks like the prodigal son. Keep going. He raised us up with Christ and the exalted one. Here's, here's where I'm fighting to get to right here. And he raised us up with Christ, the exalted one. And we ascended with him into the glorious perfection and authority of the heavenly realm. For we are now co-seated as one with Christ. Come on. Come on. See, again, the second son gets the same authority that the first son gets. That we are co-heirs with Christ, seated with him in heavenly places. We're co-heirs with him. Where is he seated? What does that mean, that we are seated with Christ, co-seated with Christ? It tells us in the previous ver or chapter, verse cha or ch Ephesians chapter 1. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Where, where is Christ seated? Right hand of God, exactly. You all spoiled it. I was going to read the verse. That's okay. It says, because of this, since I first heard about your strong faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your tender love towards all his devoted ones, my heart is always full, overflowing with thanks to God for you, for you as I constantly remember you in my prayers. I pray that the Father of glory, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, would impart to you the riches of the spirit of wisdom the spirit of revelation, to know him through your deepening intimacy with him. I pray that the light of God will illuminate the eyes of your imagination, flooding you with the light until you experience the full revelation of the hope of his calling. That is the wealth of God's glorious inheritance. There's that word, inheritance, that he finds in us his holy ones. I pray that you will continually experience the immeasurable greatness of God's power made available to you through faith then your lives will be an advertisement of this immense power as it works through you. This mighty power that was released when God raised Christ from the dead and exalted him to the place of highest honor and supreme authority in the heavenly realms. All right, here we go. Here's, here's where it answers our question. And now, this is where Christ is. He is exalted as first above every ruler, authority, government, and realm of power in existence. He is gloriously enthroned over every name that is ever praised, not only in this age, but in the age that is coming. And he alone is the leader and source of everything needed in the church. God has put everything beneath the authority of Jesus Christ, 
and has given him the highest rank above all others. Where are we seated? You can say it this time. <laughs> We're seated with Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God, above all principality, above all powers, above every name that is named, above every demon that would try to come and haunt you, above every sin that would try to entangle you. You are above it all because you are co-heirs seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You have authority over everything the enemy would try to throw at you, over everything this world has to offer. You have authority over it because you are co-heirs with Christ, seated with him in heavenly places. Amen? And some would take this, this idea and this thought, and I, I want to clarify this, and it has happened before, and take this thought and say, well, that makes us like God, right? That makes us little gods. We're not little gods. That it still says that he, it says that he fills all and that he is above all and he rules all, amen? The only reason we're in this place of authority is because he chooses to give it to us. And it says that in Ephesians 2, we're not gonna go there, but it says that it's by grace you have been saved. Least not that we should boast. We're in this seat of authority not because we've done anything to earn it. You could never do anything to earn it. There's no good deed that you could do to make you worthy to sit in the same seat of Christ. But because of his great love with which he loved us, he made us heirs of the throne. He made us heirs with Christ. And because of that, we are now seated above all principality and power and might and dominion. You are more powerful than you realize. That's what I want to get across to you this morning, that you are more powerful than you realize. That when you speak, you have authority. That you are sons and daughters of God. Get an amen to that. If I haven't preached that enough, you are sons and daughters of God. And with that comes the authority of the Father. That you wear the robe. That you are robed. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That you wear the ring on your finger. That you can make transactions in the name of the Father. That you have the authority Christ, the authority of Yahweh God in you you are more powerful than you realize. And it's time, church, that we start living up to the name that we have been given. It's time that we start walking in the authority that we have been given. Amen? Other verses says that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. It says in Mark, it says that if you say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, that it has to listen to you that you have more authority than you realize. And again, time that we start walking in that. And I would love to go into some examples of what that can look like, but I think we're gonna have to continue that next week, which is good because it gives me something to preach about next week. Amen? But I just wanna end with that thought once again. We are not anemic. We're not just trying to get through this earth till we get to the by and by. We're not just trying to make it to heaven that we have a responsibility here on earth to represent Christ, that there comes a responsibility with the ring and the robe, that when you got saved, yes, you gotta, you, you're, you're gonna get into heaven now, that you, you have a place now with the Father, but it's also a responsibility that you have been given to represent the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that when you wear that ring or when you have, the, because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you cannot just let that sit there we have authority to use it, and we have authority to represent the King of Kings on this earth. 
And it's time we start walking in that authority, start realizing who we are in Christ and not letting this world beat us up. Not letting the things of this world beat us up, but, ha- but walking in the authority that we actually have.